morning. I'm glad to uh, see you. We're, uh, today it's really uh, fun to introduce Peter Haas. He's a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He's, his most recent work focuses on multi-level governance and the role of science in international environmental regimes and is writing a book on the evolution of multilateral environmental governance uh, since 1972. I think a lot of you know his previous work. He's the author of Saving the Mediterranean, the Politics of International Environmental Cooperation that Columbia published more than 10 years ago now, I guess. But many of us use it in our graduate seminars. He edited Knowledge and Power, International Policy Coordination, and plenty of others, some with Bob Cohane, some with others from around the world, actually. He's had articles in all the major journals, and I know you've read a lot of them. He's consulted for the Commission on Global Governance, the United Nations Environmental Program, the U.S. Department of State, uh, goes on and on, the National Academy of Sciences, Association for Advancement of Science, and so forth. Today, he's going to talk about addressing the global governance deficit. And I guess your solution is not the United States just steps in and provides the, uh, the uh, rest. Without further ado, uh, Peter Haas. It's good to have you. Thank you. Thanks very much. In fact, I think my whole talk will have very little to do with states and much more to do with um, involving all sorts of non-state actors in um, multi-level governance, which is a you know, subversive effort to trap states and limits on sovereignty that they don't anticipate. Uh, the talk today is based on a book that, an edited book that I've got coming out this summer called Emerging Forces in Environmental Governance that I co-edited with um, a Japanese colleague, Norichika Kani, and I've also got uh, an article based on the conclusion to the book coming out sometime later this year in global environmental politics, which you know, serves the purpose of a trailer for a forthcoming movie um, advertising a book. Um, okay. Basically, over the last 30 years, there's been an enormous amount of institution building in the international environmental realm dealing with transboundary and global environmental problems. Over the last 10 years, there has been a lot of sort of hand-wringing in the international community, sort of bemoaning the ineffectiveness of many of these efforts, um, what I call the, um, the global governance deficit, because the governance efforts that have been designed to promote international environmental protection are widely criticized for a number of reasons, which I will be addressing in a couple of moments. Um, the argument that I'm going to make is that these arguments criticizing the inefficiency of global environmental governance are, in essence, fundamentally ill-conceived. And they're ill-conceived for two reasons. One is that they neglect some major 
sort of new geopolitical realities of the international system. And secondly, they neglect some empirical facts that there is a quite extensive network or system of global environmental governance, but people who think only about a state-centric system don't see that governance network because the governance network is made up of a bunch of sort of non-traditional, non-state actors operating at multiple levels of governance with a peculiar division of labor amongst all of these actors um, about who is performing which governance functions. Um, so my talk today is going to be sort of um, an outline of what this new governance system looks like. And this is really just sort of an initial mapping enterprise, a foray, because we um, there are so many actors that we don't have a good sense yet of who does what and how well these functions are performed, um, nor do we have a um, good set of theories about which to theorize about um, these dynamics, um, other than perhaps some incipient constructivism and weak institutionalism. Um, but that, um, that's the subject, I think, of another talk. Um, by governance, I basically mean the array of rules and roles that provide for order at the international level. And the old, or at least 10 years old, Rosenau and Sempiel book on governance without government captures much of this idea. That is that governance really consists of a set of functions that have to be performed in order to maintain order. It is not the more sort of traditional realpolitik style of one dominant actor setting the rules and enforcing them for everybody else. Um, and that notion of governance um, as a whole set of um, governance functions that have to be performed uh, has in fact sort of caught on, at least in the environmental realm. Paula Dobriansky, the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs in the current Bush administration, announced in September 2001, I don't know if it was early or late in the month, um, but she expressed this notion that governance is a complex array of technical administrative functions that need to be performed. She said that, quote, Governance is a foundation for sustainable development, yada, yada, yada. Effective multilateral treatment of transboundary and global environmental threats rests on capacity building, effective institutions, public access to information, informed and science-based decision-making, 
public participation and access to justice and enforcement. Sort of an odd statement for the Bush administration, particularly given its recent history in dealing with um, science panels. But nonetheless, that captures the notion of governance that I am addressing in this talk. There are two major historical shifts that you know, have occurred at some point over the last 50 years, or maybe 150 years. You can always argue about these sort of systemic and ontological shifts, but the point is that these major geopolitical shifts provide the foundation for an alternative view of global governance. And those two shifts are essentially the increased complexity of international politics, that is, with complex interdependence, globalization, and so on, distinct policy issues are now complexly intertwined with other issues in ways that are not immediately apparent to most decision makers. Um, Albert Hirschman, in an interesting essay, um, sort of just noted in passing that one of the major policy implications of complexity and of contemporary international relations is the um, the frequency of unanticipated consequences. You know, what Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. He was being probably more theoretical than he realized at the time. But, um, you know, there are two points that follow from that. The first is that with complexity, you have increased uncertainty on the part of decision makers, so they need to um, delegate authority and to consult expertise. That's the whole constructivist line of analysis as to what happens when decision makers get different kinds of information and how does it shape um, subsequent policy. That's an aside. That's not today's talk. Um, Hirschman's point, which is really interesting, and I have no idea what you do with it, um, is that the vast majority of, of research on unanticipated consequences looks at negative unanticipated consequences. The presumption is that, you know, bad things happen and you try to pre prepare for that. But what Hirschman said is, you know, nobody ever looks at positive unanticipated consequences, which is interesting, but I don't know what you do with it. Um, but discuss, you know, discussions of environmental policy and global um, sustainable development and global governance are totally tied up with trying to deal with negative unanticipated consequences. Um, if you talk about positive unanticipated consequences of global change, um, you get dismissed as a Pollyanna. The second major historical shift um, is the emergence of multiple actors organized 
in networks at the international level. So, you know, we've got, multi, it's Kohen and Nye, it's complex interdependence. You've got multinational corporations, NGOs, um, epistemic communities, and independent scientific networks, um, and occasionally um, autonomous secretariats from international organizations, as well as transgovernmental politics, all playing a role in managing global problems, right? So you don't have monolithic states. You've got a whole lot of other actors who are performing real functions of international governance that gets commonly neglected, both um, in um, analyses of the causes of problems and in um, analyses of potential solutions to problems. It's not hard to make a, uh, to extrapolate from this sort of ontological claim to thinking about the way the U.S. has responded to um, terrorism, which is by targeting state actors because they don't know how to deal with non-state actors. Um, and then there's more recent literature from the 80s and 90s, um, which renames many of these actors and talks about transnational advocacy networks, policy networks, advocacy coalitions, um, epistemic communities, um, Anne-Marie Slaughter's work on judges, um, and the, the whole argument is still really consistent with earlier work on regulatory capture, iron triangles, and the role of transnational actors in international politics. But the implication, the consequence of this for global governance is that there are now a whole array of important, legitimate actors who perform a host of governance functions that are underappreciated in studies of um, global governance. And that most of them are organized in networks. They don't, um, transnational networks um, relying heavily on the internet um, through which campaigns are coordinated and information is exchanged. Um, if there are any sociologists here who study um, network theory, I'd like to talk to you afterwards and I hope to learn something from you. Um, but you know, you, you've got the, the, the Granovetter literature and Sidney Tarot talking about transnational social movements and the, the political power of organized non-state actors all of whom are able to channel political pressures on the state. Now, the state still enjoys legal supremacy in this um, governance system. Ju uh, juridical sovereignty remains unchallenged, although operational sovereignty is being eroded right and left. That is the domain of domestic public policy that states are expected to perform has um, been greatly modified over the last 30 years. 
And another way of saying that is that there is now sort of a new, if not generative principle, at least common goal that states pursue in the international system. In addition to the traditional goals of wealth and power maximization, um, governments now try to um, pursue ecological integrity. Environmental protection is one of the core missions of the modern state. And that has, that's new and has emerged as a consequence of the last 30 years of governance efforts, largely, I argue, elsewhere, through the interplay of um, epistemic communities and um, a small number of international institutions, leading to a transformation of state interests. All right, so the, this governance system has the potential for transforming preferences and possibly even identities of some of the constituent members of the system. Right. Now, in the environmental realm, the UN Environment Program was created in 1973 as sort of the, the institutional node for environmental governance. And it was designed in an early sort of network model of institutional design, uh, in part driven by politics because nobody wanted to pay a lot of money for a new organization, in part driven by uh, the prevailing organizational doctrinal views of its architects that the best way to address complex problems is through a loose, decentralized um, organization rather than through a traditional, standalone, monolithic, large international organization like, for instance, the World Bank or the IMF. So the UNEP was created off in the remote location of Nairobi and um, was charged with being catalytic or to sort of engage in global consciousness raising, get governments and other international organizations to take the environment seriously, train a bunch of environmental diplomats and policymakers largely in the developing world, um, and also to help craft um, international treaties, what are now called multilateral environmental agreements, um, to create regimes to deal with transboundary and global environmental threats. And UNEP was actually incredibly successful at crafting ambitious, comprehensive, interesting new environmental regimes that addressed politically and economically costly problems that the international community had been reluctant to address previously. We moved from you know, easy, boring stuff like you know, saving birds that don't you know, really have a... Nobody's ox is being gored. You know, it's, that, that's an easy problem. 
Um, to serious problems of pollution control um, where the costs of environmental protection are concentrated, the benefits are highly diffuse, and the degree of corporate and industrial opposition was quite high. And yet, UNEP managed to sort of overcome this opposition through a large degree of autonomy and adroit diplomacy on the part of the staff, as well as mobilizing epistemic communities and um, using science to try to educate governments that environmental protection was necessary if they wished to continue to pursue the traditional um, state goals of economic growth and prosperity promotion. Um, but by the late 1980s, UNEP was sort of suffering from its own success. Um, the environment had caught on as a popular issue on the global agenda, and other major international organizations had picked up on the topic and started to sort of acquire competence in the area of environmental governance. Um, so a lot of the best staff from UNEP left because they didn't want to live in Nairobi anymore because Nairobi was no longer the sort of Elysian tropical paradise that it had been in the 1970s but um, had fallen apart largely to do with domestic politics in Kenya than anything else. Um, and so they, many of the best people decided they'd rather work in organizations like the World Bank or the EU where they had nicer offices and got paid better and didn't have to travel as much. Um, UNEP was also critiqued justifiably for being um, too remote, too understaffed, and under-resourced. Didn't have enough people, didn't have enough budget, and it was tasked with too many responsibilities to be able to perform effectively. Now, the real problem with governance reform is what do you do with UNEP? Because while it's true that UNEP as the institutional hub of the international system has lots of administrative flaws, it's also politically impossible to eliminate UNEP because it is one of the few, if perhaps not the only, international organization that has its headquarters in a developing country. So there's no way that the G77 is going to be able to approve any significant diminution of UNEP's role in the UN system, much less killing the organization and moving it somewhere else. Um, there have been a number of proposals over the last 15 years or so about what to do with UNEP and how to improve the sort of governance structure. And these proposals vary from grand, ambitious notions of creating a new global environmental organization from scratch that, in fact, would be sort of 
a little bit of the World Bank, a little bit of UNEP, a little bit of sort of all of the international organizations that have anything to do with environmental responsibilities, as well as scientific monitoring, as well as administering money, um, which probably suffers from at least three major problems, one being that the existing organizations would, are more powerful than UNEP and would resist um, losing resources. Secondly, um, none of the major donor countries are particularly interested in the proposal. The Germans submitted this at a UN conference in 1997. It was discussed for about two hours and then sunk without a trace. And now the only people promoting it are um, the Green Party and the Green Party's um, subsidized think tank in Germany. Um, and then the third reason for why I don't think it's a particularly good idea isn't political, um, but it's theoretical. And that is that in terms of organizational theory, uh, strong centralized monolithic organizations are simply the wrong design principle for dealing with complex problems. That loosely decentralized networks are far more effective at dealing with problems for reasons that I will address and uh, mention in just a moment. Um, then there are a couple of sort of modest reforms. Um, the French are running around the world uh, issuing demarches um, and trying to promote a proposal basically to sort of strengthen UNEP, um, elevate UNEP to a real specialized agency in the UN system instead of a program, which means that they would have a regular budget um, instead of having to depend on voluntary contributions. Um, which may not make a difference for the total amount of money they would have, but at least it means that they would get it early in the year instead of two or three years later when governments finally get around to um, appropriating these funds. Um, so it would make the administration of the organization easier. Um, I don't know if it would make much difference beyond that. That's analogous to the argument in the U.S. that um, the EPA should be a cabinet-level um, department because at least then they'll be in the loop of decision making of the cabinet instead of um, on the outside and having to depend on special invitations to be included in anything important. Um, a third set of uh, proposals which are the ones that I'm sort of, I suppose, associated with because I've been involved in this global governance reform project as a participant observer for about the last seven or eight years, getting to you know, attend meetings where people talk about what you should do, both in the role of sort of an invited expert as well as a fly on the wall so that I can do research. Um, you know, one way, of call, one way of thinking about this is by calling it um, pragmatic constructivism, and it's the appropriate application of um, consensual social science to the um, 
to public policy, but uh, without patting myself on the back, it's also just sort of a convenient way of um, doing participant observation research. Um, and there's an alternative set of reforms for global governance um, that are now being put forward by the Yale Center for Law and um, Policy, Dan Estes shop, um, a French think tank that advises Chirac, um, which sort of politics makes strange bedfellows. They're providing sort of liberal advice to a conservative government. Um, and um, the third sort of constituency group supporting this proposal um, is the United Nations University, which sponsored um, the book from which this talk is drawn. Um, and we make three arguments about reforms for multi-level environmental governance. The first is the sort of theoretical framework um, from which we deduce policy reforms. And that is that according to current organizational thinking, decentralized information-rich systems are the best design for addressing highly complex and tightly coupled problems. Vinnie Agarwal's got a book, um, Cornell Press, from a few years ago, in which he sort of makes this argument about um, the tactical and substantive linkages between regimes, and with the argument being that regimes are really sort of most effective when they've got a, a whole array of loose connections between them, rather than when you're concentrating power in any particular regime and trying to get stuff done that way. Thus, international governance for sustainable development may be best served through a decentralized architecture coordinated by an electronically sophisticated hub that is capable of quickly accessing usable information and transmitting it to the appropriate institutional nodes in the network. Um, and concerns about redundancy and efficiency uh, to my mind, are really red herrings for these kinds of design principles. Uh, you know, economists don't like redundancy because it's, you've got scarce resources that aren't being used in the most efficient manner. But politically, what redundancy does is to amplify the political influence of policy networks involved in governance and also ensures that the governance system persists even if one of the major nodes suffers political setbacks. So you've got multiple sources of funding, even when you've got you know, capricious reversals by one of the major countries. Um, plus, you know, we aren't really talking about all that much money anyhow. Um, similarly, efficiency is a principle that obscures the symbiotic influences between the elements of the network. Such decentralized systems do not cede full autonomy to states or markets. Rather, they seek to engage states and markets 
with actors and policy networks who are sensitive to possible abuses of unfettered free markets. Um, secondly, we make a um, descriptive argument which says that empirically, when you look at the world, there really is a multi-level decentralized governance system for the environment. Um, and you know, normatively and analytically, that's superior to either a state-based or a strongly institutionalized arrangement um, because it provides for um, rapid information diffusion amongst actors, both about new problems as they emerge and in order to coordinate political campaigns. It accelerates responses by not leaving it up to the uh, sort of least interested and politically most powerful actor. These sorts of networks are harder to capture politically than large organizations or individual governments. Um, think of the IMF. And these sorts of networks are much more likely to generate innovative and new ideas to deal with problems because they've got porous boundaries. Um, okay, so if you sort of look at how global governance really works in the environmental realm. You've got a bunch of principal functions of governance. And the, these governance functions seem to be performed by a whole host of different actors, non-state actors, states, international institutions, and actors working in strange partnerships with one another. Um, so, I mean, we could talk about that more later. The, um, the proposition that I'm making is that when you really look at the world, a lot of these governance functions are really being performed. They aren't all being performed by states, and we need to know much more about who is performing which of these functions, how well, are there gaps, what are the potential sort of synergies and conflicts between actors when they're involved in performing these governance functions. Um, but the key insight is that the global governance system, at least for the environment, is decentralized, but not disjointed, contrary to the sort of conven conventional criticism of um, the international system. Right? So we've got a decentralized, but not disjointed system of global governance. Uh, 
in addition to simply needing more careful work on figuring out who's doing what, there are some concrete proposals that um, can be made about how to make this decentralized system work better without fighting the difficult political battles of trying to create entirely new institutions during a period where the political climate for, pros um, for these things uh, seems fairly uh, dim. Um, okay, so, you know, by function, it would be nice to have a sort of standing independent scientific panel recruited on merit, multidisciplinary, multinational participation, um, responsible for monitoring changes in major global and regional ecosystems. And that would provide an early warning um, or agenda-setting function for global governance, provide information to everybody else so that they would know when to start building regimes and sort of rank ordering what are the most important threats facing the international community. Because it, the vast, over the last 10 years, the vast majority of scientific and diplomatic resources in the environmental realm have been dedicated to fighting climate change. It is not at all clear that climate change is the most important environmental threat. Then, you know, clever social scientists could um, think about designing social indicators as early warning signs of environmental threats instead of having to rely on direct observation of um, ecosystems and of species, right? I mean, why not look at migratory patterns of people who lived in potentially threatened um, areas? You know, prices are always a good indicator of scarcity. Um, there's a number of potential um, sort of technical techniques for um, estimating environmental crises that don't require direct observation of the environment. But because most environmental science is dominated by environmental scientists, um, they're reluctant to involve social scientists or to share money with them on projects like that. Um, you know, other than strategic assessment group and the CIA. So they spend money and nobody listens. Um, all right. You know, verification, policy verification can always be improved. Um, and within this framework that we are um, applying, the best way to pursue or undertake 
the verification function is through um, third-party non-state actors stashing? I have no idea what that means um, yeah but I mean the you yeah. Oh. Anyhow, um, increased use of um, sort of authoritative NGOs, the way Amnesty International works in the human rights um, realm. Um, the Earth Council is an environmental analog to that. That's sort of laboring in relative obscurity in Costa Rica. And there's, um, there have been proposals for um, inspections of um, factories and various facilities by inspectors from um, environmental secretariats and, environment and international organizations. Um, yeah, which is an interesting idea. Um, it's clearly a need for more money. I mean, I can't think of a single international problem that, you know, one of the litany of responses isn't uh, technology transfer and financial resource transfers, but it's true in the environment as well. Uh, most countries, most certainly developing countries and formerly centrally planned economies, need money to pay for environmental protection and to pursue sustainable development. Um, so it would be nice if there was more foreign aid, more money from the multilateral financial institutions, and incentives for um, the private sector to engage in foreign investment in cleaner technologies. Uh, the enforcement function parallels uh, the verification function, greater role of um, third-party inspectors so that they aren't captured by the, um, the principals who are be whose behavior is being evaluated. Um, environmental monitoring is, of course, an important function of governance you need environmental monitoring to know what's going on, to know what problems are, and also to be able to assess progress at dealing with um, particular environmental problems. One of the um, problems in environmental monitoring is that most monitoring programs are designed to look for problems. And if they don't find a problem, they stop monitoring. And if they do find a problem, they've done their work, and then they can go and look for another problem. So there's no time series data, there's no synoptic evidence to actually make claims about whether or not the environment is doing better or worse, because um, all you've got are a few snapshot anecdotes, uh, with a few exceptions. So, I mean, you certainly need more concerted effort at studying the same thing over time uh, there's no reason to leave that up to states. Why not expand the number of actors involved in monitoring? 
And administratively, you could consolidate the, um, the monitoring efforts across uh, different actors and different international organizations to monitor different media. You know, I mean, it's, there's no reason that you have different organizations all studying um, different aspects of um, air quality, for instance. You could consolidate all of those monitoring functions within one body. Uh, let's see then. There's there's some reforms that could be considered about improving the rulemaking function of governance. Um, one sort of interesting idea is consolidating all of the secretariats for these different environmental regimes in one place. Because there, I mean, there's a table of the locations of the major secretariats, and they're all over the place. Not only that, there, I recently heard that um, the number of days per year that are devoted to meetings on international environmental regimes, um, biodiversity, climate change, marine pollution, is something on the order of 160 to 190 days a year. Right? So that's one government bureaucrat has to spend his or her entire year just traveling around from one to another. And yeah, like in most governments, it isn't the same person who does all of this, but in a lot of smaller governments, there aren't that many people. And just the logistical difficulties of keeping up on the negotiations, much like doing anything about it, or even, God forbid, preparing, um, is just daunting. So it would probably make a lot of sense, particularly for smaller governments, to consolidate all these secretariats in one place. Uh, you could argue about where to do it. Um, secondly, it makes political sense, because if you had all the secretariats in one place, you would have, in essence, sort of um, environmental embassies representing different governments, which would strengthen the environmentalists or the environmental specialists within their own governments and put them in closer contact with their counterparts in other countries, thus strengthening transgovernmental linkages and also promoting policy learning and um, the exchange of information amongst people who are um, realistically fairly marginalized within their own administrations. Uh, then there's one of the other major criticisms of UNEP and of environmental governance is that the most influential international institution in the environmental realm at the current moment is arguably the WTO. Because the WTO, through trade and environment um, or dispute resolution panels, can force governments to overturn um, environmental policies that they had committed to through ratifying multilateral environmental agreements. 
And there's something like 30 of the international environmental treaties have some um, trade interference implications and would be subject to challenge by the WTO to the WTO field like. So, you know, one of the needs for improving governance is to try to figure out how to have some credible counterweight to the WTO. You know, the, the big monolithic governance strategy is you create some, you either change the WTO, which is pretty hard, or you create something that's so big and powerful that it's a counterweight to the WTO for which there's no political support, but you could, in fact, um, create a roster of environmental advocates, you know, international environmental lawyers, whose job would be to advocate on behalf of the environment in trade and environment cases at the WTO arbitration panel. So that when the WTO had to appoint experts to these panels, they'd have a roster of people who weren't just trade experts, but were actually environment experts or trade and environment experts. And there's a whole generation of these people coming out of law school. Um, okay, so in conclusion, what I'm arguing here is that the very least there is an inchoate multi-level governance system emerging, evolving, you can use your choice of words, um, that is decentralized but not disjointed, and we need to know more about how it works, the virtues and problems associated with this alternative form of international public policy and to think, I think, much more deeply about what it means for the persistence of the sovereign state system because, I mean, what we've got here is a sort of subversive approach to sovereignty. Sovereignty is not being attacked head-on. Sovereignty is still there as a generative norm, but the way in which sovereignty can be expressed is circumscribed, and states have to share legitimate authority with other actors in the international realm. Right? So it isn't hierarchy, it isn't anarchy, it's something else, something that Ken Waltz would probably never recognize. Um, so the world has changed, and I think in this instance, possibly for the better, and we need to look more closely at how this changed international system really operates. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I think this